Welcome back, Rosebuds. Uh, we've been talking so far with Russ Sercione, uh, and we are just wrapping up our conversation around crisis management, the coronavirus, and his inspiration for running in New Jersey's 6th Congressional District. Now we're going to be talking a little bit about universal basic income, one of his other top priorities, as he had mentioned beforehand in our part one. Uh, Russ, what was your inspiration for embracing a universal basic income in your campaign? Well, uh, Andrew Yang, he's been talking about it for a very long time. And honestly, uh, even before Yang had brought it up, uh, I think there was a TED Talk that really piqued my interest in this concept. Because there's actually data that shows uh, from a Canadian study that it, that it does work in real-world applications. So I, I was really, really thank, honestly very thankful for Yang uh, bringing this issue to the forefront. Um, I, I did disagree with on just one piece of his, um, you know, application of it, but I think the concept of a UBI is very important, and it's becoming actually more and more clear now. Uh, and we see me, um, you know, Bernie Sanders calling for UBI. We mm -hmm. even see we even see uh, the Trump administration calling for, I guess, almost like a UBI, but yeah, a little bit, a universal, yeah, a little, a little bit, but a universal basic income would. Um, which stimulate our economy, compensate the important work that people do, that maybe um, the uh, the capitalist market does not fairly compensate, and and put put money into people's pockets. And during a crisis like this, where we're dealing with massive layoffs in such a short amount of time, we need a, a comprehensive program that takes care of all people. And I think a UBI would do that. So I think one thousand dollars a month per adult and $500 per child in the household is a good starting point, and we should address, uh, we should definitely start that as a pilot program uh, and see how it does. If it's doing well, we should up it, we should increase it. If it's if it's doing poorly, then maybe we should reevaluate how we're, how we're implementing it. But look, we're, we're supposed to be, uh, we're dealing with a very, very uh, fluid scenario right now, right? Uh, it hit us by surprise, it took us by surprise. Uh, we're seeing, we're seeing very quick and rapid economic decline. Mm -hmm. You know, we're seeing essentially, essentially a complete crash of our economy. And what better way to help working people than giving them actual money that they need to buy food, water, diapers, formula, uh, medicine, all of these things. Um, so yeah, my inspiration is definitely Yang for the UBI. Uh, but but I, I think that the time has come because, uh, you know, extremely difficult scenarios like, such as this one require really out-of-the-box thinking. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you there. And I think beyond just even this specific crisis, I think a lot of the signals that Yang had said in his campaign about, like, automation, there are other threats that are coming to just our jobs and means of being able to sustain ourselves through work. And that also goes beyond just our traditional work. There are, as you said, many positions that are not even considered work in our economy currently. It doesn't contribute to our GDP, but is essential for keeping our communities functioning. And when we're talking yeah. about a health crisis, every single study that has really actually looked at what its impact has been on health has been a vastly improved health because now you can get yourself better food so you can stay healthier. You have less anxiety because you know you have this guaranteed income stream. You have this ability to, you know, actually live in a sustainable manner because you have capital. 
I don't think you see a lot of unhealthy wealthy people. They have all these nice trends that they go through because they can afford to actually go through with it. Um, and so I'm glad to hear that Yang inspired you to be able to embrace something like that. Uh, you had mentioned before you had one differentiation from him, and you had also mentioned that you supported a child UBI. Was that one of the differences, or was there another difference from his structuring of a freedom dividend that you would also try and propose with the universal basic income? Uh, well, I guess we could really implement it by having everyone, uh, everyone can get a Federal Reserve account. Right, just um, an account at the Federal Reserve, a bank account that just automatically deposited once a month a thousand dollars. Honestly, honestly, why, why not? Like, why not? Uh, there's one and a half trillion dollars that was dished out to Wall Street overnight. Uh, I think it was last week. For that same amount, we could have paid the UBI for every single household in America for six months. Yeah. Right. Over and over and. That money just disappeared into shareholder stock uh, stock accounts, and it just disappeared into the market, right? Instead, we should have had a direct cash infusion to the people that need it the most, you know, every single household yeah. in America. Uh, look, the, there's three, about, what, 345 million Americans? Look, we could... We have to look out for them, not, not the stock market, which is made up of mostly imaginary numbers that are completely inflated, uh, why not have a UBI? There's uh, there's no coherent argument against it at this at this point in time, and their only argument has completely been shattered by the Federal Reserve itself. Uh, and I mean, my in terms of differences from Andrew Yang's platform, mm -hmm. I don't think it should affect uh, affect any other public benefits that people receive, um, because you know those those people are already struggling to to get by, um, but. Uh, because, you know, I, I think food stamps are a good thing. People need to eat. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think um, that that's my main, that was my main gripe with Andrew Yang's part of democ um, Freedom Dividend. Uh, but I mean, the, but honestly, like the, the policy is, is incredible. It's it's forward thinking. It's uh, about uh, humanity first, which is a slogan that I love. And I, I, a lot of his policies I, I agree with. Um, and I guess also the for the $500 a month for the child uh, has been recently proposed by uh, Congressional Representative Ilan Omar, mm -hmm. and that's something that makes sense to me as well because it does take, um, you know, there's estimates it costs about thirteen to eighteen thousand dollars a year to uh, to raise a child up until the age of eighteen for every parent. So that will help address those concerns because the child has needs too, and we should be. And you're exactly right. We should be. Uh, giving people the means to buy healthy food, uh, experience a healthy lifestyle, because these things should not be privileges. Uh, a he healthy food, having time to relax, having time to spend with your family should not be privileges. These should be guaranteed as rights to everyone. Uh, and it's unfair that only the extremely wealthy get to enjoy all of them. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. And I appreciate that you can still appreciate the program, even if you still see that you have some differences in opinion with it. I think there has been some complete write-off critiques of maybe calling it like a Trojan horse. My one concern, though, in why uh, having it be an opt-in where you give up these programs is when you have a lot of these means-tested welfare programs, having this income raise of $12,000 a year is going to displace a lot of people from those programs anyway, or is going to reduce the benefits they already receive. 
Do you believe that's just we should be structuring it that way where we understand that? Should we be lifting the income floor? How do you find that balance so that they can keep those existing programs despite the income rates? So we could just declare it under the uh, tax code as non-income. It's not, it's not to be considered income for any purposes. And that's the entire problem goes away. It wouldn't affect their benefits. Uh, it's, it's literally like a line in the, in the tax code, which uh, is hundreds of pages. Uh, but I did take tax law in law school, so I, I know a little bit about it. And uh, if it's not considered income by the IRS, it will not affect any current benefits. So it's really, honestly, it's just about good lawmaking. Uh, and that's why, honestly, that's why it's important for our congressional representatives to be attorneys and have legal backgrounds, because um, because at least 50 percent of the job is drafting new legislation and also being to, able to look at other person's proposals and crafting workarounds. And that's some of the experience that I'll bring to the table as a congressional representative. You know, I've been a government attorney for four years now, a little over four years. Uh, I've been. I've drafted laws that protect 200,000 manufactured home tenants that live in New York, uh, seniors, that protects them from scams and fraud, uh, protects their rents, protects their rights to the ground underneath them, which they've been renting their entire lives. Uh, I have experience in the legislative field that will be honestly allow me to get into office on day one and be proposing lots of new legislation, interpreting other legislation, especially ones that are written by uh you know, conservatives and Republicans and anybody else. So that's really a huge benefit to uh, my skill uh, of my skill set that I'll bring to our district. And honestly, it's something that you kind of need in uh, a representative. Um, it's it's definitely a, um, one of my one of my great skill sets that applies. And that's another reason why I decided to run for Congress because I have this skill set that is directly relevant to the position. And uh, so, you know, I, I've I've already have I already have a few bills I'm drafting right now uh, that are in the works that within my first 100 days could be released and be honestly, um, honestly, landmark legisla legislative pieces for our nation. Uh, because, um, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit creative with my legislative, with my legislative uh, uh, capabilities here. But, um, you know, as, as a government attorney, also, I've, I've been on the front lines of housing justice, I've protected people. Uh, they stay in their homes. Uh, we enforce the rent stabilization law in mm -hmm. New York State, and uh, that's something I want to see on a national level, potentially, because everyone deserves to have a stabilized house. Uh, everyone deserves to have stabilized rents, so they can have, um, so we can really have a, a stable housing market. Um, but I guess getting getting back to getting back to your question, yeah, we could specifically crafted so it's not included in income and people still keep their benefits and just have it really as a uh it's honestly an economic stimulus of the best kind putting hands of the people putting money into the hands of people is the best way to stimulate our economy well i i certainly appreciate that experience i do have a lot of concerns with a lot of the people who just get mobilized and want to get into congress because they don't have that background of actually understanding how to write legislation and being able to like, they try to learn on the job rather than actually coming in with some background experience. So I really appreciate that aspect. The last thing that I really wanted to ask you in regards to UBI is regarding two different aspects, funding and then the universality aspect to it. In terms of funding, uh, do you have any differences there other than the welfare consolidation? Do you support things like a VAT? And are there other forms of taxation 
that you would want to try and bring into a proposal like this? Yeah, we could definitely we could definitely consider that. Absolutely, I, I think it. I think it would work. We just I just want to make sure that we don't um, that we don't hurt hurt the people that need it the most, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we could we could have a small wealth tax on wealth over billions of dollars. And to be to be honest, uh, to be honest, if you're familiar with modern monetary theory, mm-hmm. that's where a lot of uh, my policies come from. We don't need to find the money. We need to find the votes because like we saw overnight, one and a half trillion dollars for Wall Street, trillions of dollars injected into the banking system that isn't going to the hands of people. It's going to it's going into the bank accounts of banks and they're hoarding it. They're doing stock buybacks they're doing uh, CEO compensations in the tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. We have to money at the end of the day was invented to be a tool to do the things that we have to do and provide good lives for all Americans. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to embrace principles of universality. Because if we truly are all equal, our programs have to be founded on equality and justice. That's why UBI has to be universal. That's why we have to really look at our monetary policy from a congressional level. We have to stop spending, wasting trillions of dollars on endless wars overseas. We have to stop spending 63% of our budget on the military, of our discretionary budget, mm-hmm. to the tune of $750 billion a year. War should be an option of last resort. That money is needed for our American people here at home, for American jobs, for our families. We need to keep that money in America. And these really, it's really all about setting our priorities. What will make us the strongest economy in the world? What will make our people the happiest in the world? What will make sure that we have an economy and a society founded on uh, economic justice, racial justice, social justice, environmental justice? These are our priorities, nothing else. Yeah, no, I, I strongly agree with you there. It really is a prioritization question. And I, I love the fact that you bring up MMT because I think a lot of the people who criticize MMT, one of the biggest things they worry about is when you print money, it is inflation. And and frankly, I have a little bit less concern with this regard because when you look at inflation, the bottom line is, is it's making a dollar worth less. But if you have zero dollars, you lost nothing. If you have billions of dollars, okay, you maybe lost something. And so the frank matter of, oh, I'm concerned because you're just going to cause hyperinflation, that doesn't actually have this basis in reality of, is it going to impact day-to-day people who have nothing? As you said, 78% of people are living paycheck to paycheck. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're not losing anything due to inflation. That is a fundamental fact. And so I'm really glad that you take that overall principle. Um, And so to that universality point, I just wanted to make one final clarification before we get to the thing that's preventing all of this prioritization, which is corruption. In terms of universality, do you believe that this should be something that extends even when we put someone away in prison? Do you think that it should be restricted to only people who are law-abiding citizens? Uh, That's a good question, and I really haven't thought about it that much. Um, But... uh... Interesting question. Actually, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. We have to look into it more. But I'm feel my gut feeling is 
no, uh, it shouldn't apply then. Um, also, I, I guess we could go back to the inflation matter real quick. So uh, you're right, inflation uh, would have, you know, what you said about inflation was correct. Also, we could have in any legislative proposal specific economic um, protections against inflation mm -hmm. because inflation occurs when supply is outpaced by demand. Yeah. So if there if supply stays flat and demand goes up, then also prices go up. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we directly counter that by increasing our supply so that it meets the demand, right? And that's what really uh, economics is about, studying both sides of the spectrum. It's not only about the demand, it's also about the supply. So we could, as a nation, also invest in increasing supply. So basically over the past few years, uh, actually over the past 30 years, we've had you know around 2%, less than 2% inflation in that area. Uh, and But we've had massive inflation in four key areas, mm -hmm. uh, education, healthcare, energy, and housing. Those four key areas have seen massive inflation. And that's because demand is outpacing supply. So what we do is we as a nation, we decide, okay, we have to invest in those four key areas of the economy by increasing our production capacities. As long as you have the capacity for more production and the ability to prioritize that production, we will meet inflation demands. And inflation is not something that it, inflation does not just occur because of printing money. In fact, mm -hmm. very, very few dollars are actually printed nowadays. Most of our money is completely digital and just the numbers on the screen in an Excel spreadsheet. So we, we, there's tons of economic tools that we could also use to counter inflation besides increasing production. Like during World War II, uh, we, uh, our federal government issued war bonds, and that was an anti-inflationary measure, actually, because what bonds do, what treasury bonds do, is to we take the cash out of the economy at that point in time so people have less to spend and, the, and promise a repayment later on. So that's another inflationary tactic that economists have, have known about for a very long time, since World War II. And honestly, look, if you're worried about the national debt, we have, what, $23 trillion yeah. in national debt? I mean, where... Like, where is the inflation that everybody's worried about? We already have the national debt there. It's not related to the debt. The national debt is just a ledger of how many dollars are outstanding in, in the economy. It's not anything to, meant to do with inflation. And this, what really modern monetary theory does is it shatters the false belief of a, limit, a limited society, of a limited supply of money. Because our federal government operates differently than all other budgets. It is the currency creator. Mm -hmm. All of us are currency users. The currency users behave differently than the creator, but the creator has to act in a manner that increases, um, that increases, that does the things that we want to do as a nation. We want people to be uh, healthy, happy, uh, economically sa uh, security. We want these things in society, and these should take priority, and they sh should be the priority of the currency creator. And the Federal Reserve will print any money that the con congressional budget approves. And we've seen that happen over the course of the past month, time and time again, where the Federal Reserve overnight can print trillions, trillions of dollars.
because yeah. Congress approved it. Yeah, and I think the thing that is the last thing I really want to say in demystifying that is that when we have all these programs, it's not that we use taxes to directly fund these programs on a federal level. We pay for this, as you said, through the Federal Reserve, and then to be able to control against inflation, we try to have taxes pull some of that money back out. And so it really is, as you said, it's a prioritization problem. And currently, mm -hmm. the reason why we have this out-of-whack prioritization in Congress is on our next subject, which is going to be corruption. So, Rosebuds, stick around. We'll be wrapping up with Russ talking about corruption. So, check out part three, and we'll be talking with him on what he means specifically when we have to combat corruption. <laughs>